because if you're a person of action, then X is right down our alley, isn't it? So I uh, love this book and what we can learn from it. This chapter, chapter 2, marks a turning point in the church, the early church. In chapter 1, the disciples were waiting for the Holy Spirit, and in chapter 2, he comes. In chapter 1, the disciples were held back. In chapter 2, uh, they were sent forth. And uh, so Pentecost is a very special day for believers. Now, uh, at the danger of maybe separating myself with different uh, belief systems, or if you want to disagree, but I would like to say uh, just from the onset, I do not believe the local church started on this day. Now, I know a lot of people teach that it did. I do not believe that the local church started at Pentecost. I believe the local church started in Matthew chapter 16. Uh, Jesus Christ uh, started the local church. Peter did not start the church. And uh, so we could, we've, we've went over that before when we went through Baptist history and such things. But, uh, so we won't go into that in, in uh, depth. But if you have any questions on that, we can maybe talk uh, afterwards. But uh, Pentecost is a very special day. In the Old Testament, uh, Pentecost was one of the three main religious feasts on the Jewish calendar. Uh, but in the New Testament, Pentecost is associated with the coming of the Holy Spirit. Uh, this is the promise that was uh, given in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, but ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost is come upon you. And then this is when that happens here in this chapter. So let's start reading in verse 1, chapter 2. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling at Jerusalem Jews, <coughs> devout men out of every nation under heaven. Now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together and were confounded. Uh, pay attention here, this is important. This is a, a, an important part of tongues right here because that every man heard them speak in his own language. Tongues, as we'll go into a little bit here, it was as much, the miracle of tongues is as much in the hearing as it is in the speaking. And they were all amazed, verse 7, and marveled, saying one to another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans, and how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? Jump down to, Verse 12, again, they were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one another, uh, What meaneth this? Others, mocking, said, These men are full of new wine. Father, I pray that you would bless this evening now, the reading of your word, and may we uh, be truthful and honest and, and uh, sincere and, and hopefully uh, completely correct in what you have in your word for us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We see in this chapter here, the rushing mighty wind of the Spirit. When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all in, with one accord in one place. Now, the day of Pentecost has come 1,500 times before this. Uh, it was Now it was fully come here. Uh, that's why it uses that terminology there. But it had come and gone, come and gone, uh, ever since Moses instituted the feast. Now uh, it has come to stay. On the day of Pentecost in the Old Testament, and I, I did a little bit of uh, going back and forth here, just how much history we want to put in here and how deep we want to go. So I'm, I'm going to give you, kind of scratch the surface of the history a little bit, uh, but that, if you want to study it deeper, there's, there's many things that, 
that I can give you there to help you with that. But in Old Testament times on the day of Pentecost, uh, the Jews took individual grains of corn, they ground them into flour, they added oil and leaven and made two loaves of bread. The loaves were then offered uh, to the Lord along with ten sacrifices in all. All of this symbolized what would take place 50 days after the resurrection of Christ uh, Pentecost, interestingly enough, always fell on the first day of the week. That symbolized, even in Old Testament times, I believe, the end of the Sabbath and the consecration of the new day of worship, uh, Sunday. All of this uh, is highly significant. Everything in the Old Testament, that the, the feasts and the special days that they celebrate, all of those things were significant and typified different things uh, in the New Testament. The oil typified the work of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Uh, the inclusion of leaven in the loaves. Uh, this was unusual because most of the time leaven was excluded from loaves, other meal offerings, uh, because leaven is a type of sin. Uh, but the inclusion of leaven here, because, well, other meal offerings that they had when they would uh, take make sure there was no leaven in there would often symbolize Christ who, who was completely free of sin. Uh, but leaven included in the loaves of Pentecost, uh, I believe because those loaves uh, typified the church, <coughs> and the church has never been free from sin. Amen? Uh, maybe Pastor DeFords is free from sin. Ours isn't, but I can speak for ours. Uh, I'm just joking on that. But the church has never been free from sin. And so leaven was included. Now, the Feast of the First Fruits were individual stalks of grain. They were used to symbolize the resurrection of Christ. And on the day of Pentecost, these individual stalks and grains <coughs> excuse me, were replaced by a loaf. One body to symbolize what would happen on the day of Pentecost when it would be fully come. On that day, 120 individual believers ascended those stairs to the upper room. They were bound together by Christ, but one body of believers came down, and that was a local church. Individuals went up, and a, and a church came down as one body. The fact that two loaves were used in the Old Testament also is significant. Uh, there was to be a second Pentecost, so to speak, in the house of Cornelius. We're not going to go into that uh, tonight, but that was a second time that, that we see it in a much smaller scale. Uh, that would bring, when that happened, that would bring the Gentiles uh, in, in that one body on an equal basis with the Jews. Uh, from then on, as Paul said, there would be neither Gentile nor Jew. Uh, we're all one in the body of Christ as far as the church is concerned. And so here we see in verse 2, And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the house where they were sitting, all the house where they were sitting. Now, it was not a wind. It was the sound of a wind. The sound was not of earth. It was one from heaven. It was symbolic. Uh, this sound announced the presence of the Holy Spirit. Now, wind, we know, is another biblical symbol of the Spirit of God. He comes from heaven. Uh, he moves at will. He cannot be commanded by anybody. Uh, he will do what he wants, not what we want. Have you ever wished you could stop the wind when it gets really strong? You can't stop the wind. It's going to do what it's going to do. Uh, Jesus said that in John 3, 8, the wind bloweth where it listeth. There's just not anything you can do about it. Uh, so he will do what he wants. Uh, all that is perfectly symbolized here and the sound from heaven like a mighty rushing wind. I started the verse, but John 3, 8, the wind bloweth where it listeth 
and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell from whence it cometh, and whither it goeth, so is everyone that is born of the Spirit. Now the aspect of Pentecost is a once-for-all phenomenon. It was something that they all heard. It was only heard by those in the upper room. It was the beginning, really, here, uh, of, of a, a new era in the local church. Like I said before, I don't believe the local church started here, but it certainly was transformed by the coming of the Holy Spirit. Uh, this is uh, the sound that, that, that there, there is uh, the, the sound of a rushing uh, mighty wind here. That, By the way, it's interesting as you uh, read through here, there's no eph- emphasis at all on this in this chapter about uh, any type of focus on feeling. It's on faith, but not on feeling. Uh, that ought to be our goal today. We ought not to be feeling-oriented. Many churches are, but we do not follow our feelings. We follow uh, the truth of the Word of God and the faith in it. So then there was an awesome sight, fire. So first there was a sound, then there was sight. By the way, that's God's order. Sometimes we like to reverse it. We like to see first. Uh, God puts the hearing first. Here in verse 3, And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as of fire, and it sat upon each of them. The fire is another symbol of the Spirit. Fire burns with a small flame, but it spreads. It can devour and consume great areas. I remember as a child, my dad wanted to burn off a part of our pasture. I don't know why, but there was just a small area he wanted to burn off. And uh, about six hours later and four fire trucks got involved. It was a huge fire that spread all the way across uh, the fields of uh, some of our neighbors makes for a, a rough relationship for a while. Uh, but uh, the, the fire spreads, doesn't it? And that's the idea here of the spirit. A couple of things fire does that I want to just bring out. It burns. Now, there's a judgment associated with fire. The lost will spend eternity in a lake of fire. The Bible tells us that. Revelation 20, 15, and whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast in a lake of fire. Now, can I say tonight that does not mean Bad people go there and good people go to heaven. It's that lost people go there and saved people go to heaven. Because none of us, the Bible says, are good. The Bible says in Romans chapter 3, there is none that doeth good, there is none righteous, no, not one. And so none of us deserve heaven, and it is not that we're good enough to earn it, but we have to recognize, like we heard in the testimonies, that uh, that it's Jesus Christ who saves us. So fire burns. It illuminates. For centuries, fire was really man's only source of artificial light. I remember growing up before we got electricity, we had we had uh, oil lamps, and and uh, if you had a fire in the stove with a glass door, that's about all you had was was some type of fire as a source of light. It gives us the ability to see in a dark world. That is one of the Holy Spirit's roles as well. He illuminates uh, the Word of God. First Corinthians chapter two verse twelve. Now. We have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know those things that are freely given to us of God. Have you ever read your Bible? Uh, and then later, maybe you've, I've talked this morning about Proverbs. I go, like to go through Proverbs every month. I call it my spiritual vitamin. Uh, Proverbs has uh, 31 chapters. Many months have 31 days. And so uh, I correlate the day that I'm on and I read that proverb and it. It's a help, but it's interesting that no matter how many times I read the book of Proverbs, I can still read a chapter in Proverbs and I can still get something new. Isn't that wonderful? Now, that that doesn't work with a Louis L'Amour book. 
I mean, you read it once, you pretty much got it. You read it twice, you get you get the rest of it if you if it's worth reading twice. But it happens with the Word of God, doesn't it? I'm not promoting Louis L'Amour, by the way, just uh, using that as an example. But uh, the Bible, the Holy Spirit illuminates. It also warms. A fire warms. Fire allows us to enter hostile places and icy places. In the same way, it is the Holy Spirit that unlocks the icy heart and allows uh, people that are closed to spiritual things to be opened. Remember a, a fellow in our church before I was here and uh, in a previous church, and, and for years we witnessed to him. We prayed for him. His wife came to our church faithfully, but he wouldn't come. <clears throat> he was unsaved, and we tried for years uh, witnessing to him and, and uh, doing everything we could to try to give him the gospel, and he would have none of it. Until one day, Brother DeFord, I know this is always a great day, great call to get at church, but uh, one day he calls the church, and uh, he said, I need to talk to somebody about getting saved. I've got to get saved. We had talked to him for years about it. What changed? I'll tell you what changed. Somehow the Holy Spirit illuminated his heart, and uh, his need for the gospel became clear. That's what the Holy Spirit does. What, what, we can point to that in our life, too, by the way. We hear preaching. We hear the Word of God. Then one day it, he turns the light on on that, and uh, so he does that for us. It smolders, a fire does. Men can extinguish an ordinary fire. But the Holy Spirit, they can never put out. It will burn in the heart of some believer and then spread to others. All this and more is suggested by that fire of Pentecost. What a great symbol of the Holy Spirit and the church age. Then let's look at the ministry of the Spirit here. Uh, verse number 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there's seven ministries of the Holy Spirit that affect the believer in this age. Number one is baptism, the baptism of the Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling of the Spirit, the seal of the Spirit, and the earnest, the Bible talks about, of the Spirit. God gives all of this to the believer at the moment of salvation. These are unconditional. Uh, they are all under God's control. They are given to every believer in Christ. <coughs> they are all one-time events. You do not lose them. I love that verse about the Spirit being our earnest uh, until, until uh, in salvation. In other words, Christ put him kind of down as the earnest in our soul uh, that he uh, is a proof of our salvation being eternal. They guarantee our standing. Now, uh, if we go to number six, the filling of the Spirit is different. This is conditional. When Paul talks about the filling of the Spirit in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, uh, he uses a present continuous tense there, and be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be and continue to be <coughs> filled with the Spirit. Uh, he uses as an illustration of being filled with wine. This is a variable state of being. The filling depends on the individual believer. He can be filled one moment, and then he can be emptied the next. This is all in uh, dependence of his obedience to God. Now, the purpose of the filling of the Holy Spirit is to make us like Jesus in his nature, in his person, even in his personality, so much so 
that all of our words and our deeds might show Christ to a lost and dying world. Uh, we are uh, truly some of the only Bibles that people read. And so let's make sure that they see Christ when they see us. The Holy Spirit filling is always available to us, but it requires a yielding on our part. On the day of Pentecost, all those that were present there were filled with the Spirit. Uh, the filling is available to every believer. There is really no excuse that God will accept for us not to be filled with the Spirit. Now, I want to be clear tonight, uh, again, that the filling of the Holy Spirit is not you getting more of the Holy Spirit. You got all of the Holy Spirit when you got saved. The filling of the Holy Spirit is really, could be better said that the Holy Spirit is getting more of you as we yield to the Holy Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit. How can you accomplish being filled with the Spirit? Being filled with the Holy Spirit really takes just, i uh, just give you a few steps here. Confess all known sin. Uh, this is very important for us to be filled with the Spirit. Uh, you, we then yield completely to the Holy Spirit. You got all of Him at salvation. Now it is about yielding daily to Him, and that's how He gets more of us. He needs to have more of our yielding, more of our life uh, in God's control. Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2 talks about this. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And is it not? Is it not reasonable for us to give our bodies uh, to the Lord? He saved us from eternal damnation. Of course it would be reasonable. And be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. <clears throat> to continue being filled with the Spirit, we have to daily submit to the will of God. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, uh, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We need to continue daily uh, being filled with the Spirit or yielding ourselves to the Holy Spirit of God. Now, what are some evidences that you are filled with the Spirit? You ask a question, how do I know, Pastor, if I'm filled with the Spirit? Well, if we're filled with the Holy Spirit, we're going to apply the Word of God in our life. The more you saturate your mind with the Word of God, the closer your relationship with the Holy Spirit will be. Psalm 119.11, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against God. Here's another one I think that's very telling about a person who is filled with the Spirit. Enjoying Christian fellowship. I think that's a big part, a big way that we can gauge whether we are yielded to the Holy Spirit. Uh, the poison, this is a quote from a preacher, I'm not sure who said it, but the poison of non-fellowship kills so slowly you don't realize it. And non-fellowship will do that. There is a serious problem in our Christian life if we do not enjoy Christian fellowship. I've seen it many times. I've seen where people start to withdraw from Christian fellowship and then later you'll see big problems become uh, evident in their life. We ought to like to be around other Christians. Amen? We ought to enjoy being around other Christians. When you travel and you stop at a church uh, while you travel, you've never been in before, you don't know a soul in that church, you can immediately have fellowship with those people because uh, they have the same God they worship and they have the whole same Holy Spirit. Uh, what a blessing that is. And then, of course, there's the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, the Bible makes it really easy with nine, 
I don't like to say fruits plural. The Bible calls it fruit singular. It's nine a nine-part fruit, you could say here. Uh, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. All these are, uh, are evidence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Now, I've said this many times before, but it bears repeating. This is not a menu. <laughs> I'll take love, joy, and I'll leave long-suffering for Brother Bill. You know, or whatever. We can't. We can't do that. We. We. This is an, an equal. We ought to be growing in every one of these areas in our Christian life. So it's not a, a choice here. We should be improving in these. Hey, do some fruit inspecting in your life. It's real easy to go down that list right there. How you doing in your love? Do you love people? How you doing in joy? Are you grumpy? Are you a grouch? Or do you have joy? Uh, how are you doing in the area of peace? And long-suffering, do you have a temper? Do you go off the handle, or are you long-suffering? These are easy questions to answer, and it's a great gauge of if whether or not we're filled with the Spirit. Now, the seventh job of the Holy Spirit is the anointing for service. In Old Testament, uh, we see prophets and priests and kings that were anointed for their respective ministries. Not all men were anointed for the same task. I believe Jesus was always filled with the Spirit, but he was not anointed till he began his ministry, Matthew chapter 3, verse 16. And so uh, that would be another job for the Holy Spirit. Now, <coughs> let's talk about this issue of tongues. Verse uh, 4, we'll look at the manifestation of the Spirit here that was strictly temporary. They began to speak with other tongues as the, as the Spirit gave them utterance. This is perhaps the most misunderstood manifestation of the Holy Spirit in the Bible. The gift of tongues in the Bible was strictly evidential. Uh, the importance of tongues uh, that we see here, I think it's interesting if you want to look at it from this angle, for 2,000 years, if God had anything to say, he said it in Hebrew. For 2,000 years, the Jews were his specifically chosen and privileged people. Now and from now on, the gospel would reach out to every kindred, every people, and every tongue. And that was made clear in the fact that every man heard the gospel in his own tongue. It's a great, great truth there. Tongues are mentioned only three times in the book of Acts. Uh, it is mentioned nowhere else in the New Testament except for 1 Corinthians. And here, Paul was dealing with the abuse of tongues. Whenever tongues are mentioned, the Jews are present and there's unbelieving Jews in the background. For, again, because tongues was evidential. Not all people had the gift of tongues. It was strictly a temporary and a transitional gift. Paul said that it would come to an end in 1 Corinthians 13.8. Uh, it was the least important of the gifts. It was abused and had to be put under severe restraint. Tongues that are practiced today, I believe, are unscriptural and are worthless as a sign. I do not believe that they are for our time today. George Zeller wrote in the Charismatic Movement, uh, and I quote, From the 2nd to the 19th century, there is no historical evidence that godly Bible believers spoke in tongues. We do have instances of tongues speaking in those centuries, but in every case, the people speaking in tongues belong to heretical groups. These groups spoke in tongues who were speaking some kind of emotional nonsense and gibberish and not real languages, as was the case in Acts chapter 2, end quote. Again, I remind you that tongues in this chapter, uh, every as they spoke tongues, in, as they were speaking, 
every man heard in his own language. Now, if you're, if I'm speaking right now and there are four different languages uh, being reflected in here, wouldn't you agree along with me that the miracle was more in the hearing than it would be in the telling? That doesn't mean that I'm simultaneously speaking in all in four languages. It really means that the hearer is hearing it in his language. And so communication, not confusion, was the key of tongues. It was a, uh, there was a reason behind it there. So let's not get that uh, mixed up there. Look, look at the advertisement that came from it. Verse number five. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. Now when this was noised abroad, the multitude came together. The Jews had migrated to country after country. They had settled all kinds of different places. Whenever there was a quorum of 10 men, the Jews would establish a synagogue. This would separate between themselves and the, the Gentile neighbors whom they mostly despised. <clears throat> so it was that on the day of Pentecost, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men out of every nation under heaven. God had assembled there, uh, presumably, a, a great multilingual Jewish con congregation here. What drew them together? Well, the Pentecost here in the upper room drew them together. As the news flashed across the city, as Luke puts it here, the multitude came together. They were amazed at what they saw. They were confounded because every man heard them speak in his own language. <coughs> of course it surprised them. I mean, imagine that miracle. Think about today, if we had an international conference with many countries represented, when an unlearned, uneducated, just a common everyday Joe like myself might get up and start preaching and everyone in the, uh, everyone that was present would hear in their own native language. That'd be quite a miracle, wouldn't it? That'd be an amazing miracle. That's what was happening here. You would ask the same thing that these people asked. How did they do it? Who taught them? Uh, these were Galileans. They were not educated Jews. They were just Common people. Now, according to the text here, uh, the people that were present were all the way from the Parthenian Empire to the east uh, uh, and, and Rome to the west. The languages and dialects here uh, probably represented from Asia, Africa, Europe, and, and they all recognized their own language. What could do more than to grab people's attention than to hear speaking in their own language? What a blessing this was. What a miracle. This is the practical point of tongues. I believe tongues in the Bible had a practical element to it. There was a reason for it. Uh, there was, this was a communication, again, not confusion, but communication gift intended to carry the gospel message to the hearts of the men uh, in every language that were present there. That kind of tongues makes sense, doesn't it? There's a reason for it. If that were still the gift of tongues today you could color me impressed, but it's not. It's not what uh, is being peddled today. Tongues, as is practiced today, I believe is the same way it was practiced in the Corinthian church, is not uh, this type. So it was, though, that on the day of Pentecost, every man understood what was being said in his own language. <coughs> Notice also verse 11 here that their tongues were, uh, very, were largely praise. Verse number 11. We do hear them speak in our tongues the wonderful works of God. Wonderful works literally means great things. This expression only occurs one other time in the New Testament. When Mary learns that she's to become the mother of the Lord, she sings a song. 
And in Luke 1.49, she says, For he that is mighty hath done to me great things. That's the same word used there. The wonderful works of God spoken here. What do you think that was? I think it was the gospel. What the Lord Jesus Christ did and his resurrection. The gift of tongues is not meant, never was, to make the disciples feel good about themselves, to make them feel superior to anybody else. It was intended to give them a powerful witness and to reach more people. It was a gift given to gather the uh, and, and capture the attention of the Jewish people and focus them on the gospel. Some of that makes sense, help you with understand tongues. Uh, tongues, I believe, had a great purpose in its beginning, and I believe it's one of the most abused uh, teachings of the Bible there. And then there was a, an assessment. There was doubt. Look at verse number 12. They were all amazed and were in doubt, saying one to another, What meaneth this? And, and I, can, I can understand that. It would be an amazing thing to see. Uh, this was something they had never seen before. These folks are used to organized religion. Uh, to, they were used to being uh, hearing about religion expressed in rules and regulations. But this scene that they saw, this amazed them. And the praise to God, they were amazed. They were flabbergasted. And then look at verse 13. Others, mocking, said these men are full of new wine. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, Paul equates the filling of the Spirit to those who are drunk with wine. I think it's interesting that here in this passage, uh, when they saw somebody filled with the Spirit, they immediately thought they were drunk with wine. You say, why is that? Well, think about the intoxicated man. When a person is intoxicated, and I never have been, but uh, I've seen it, unfortunately, uh, his walk is affected. He cannot walk like he normally does. That's why they draw a line, and uh, sometimes the police officers do to make you walk a straight line, and an intoxicated person can't walk a straight line because he's off balance, and so it affects his walk. Uh, an intoxicated person's speech is affected as well. You've heard that. They can't talk clearly. They start to slur, and they start to uh, not speak like they normally do. Even his personality is affected. And we could go on and on down the list, but you get the point. When a person's intoxicated, it affects everything about him. Guess what happens to a person who's filled with the Spirit? His walk is affected, amen? His speech is affected. His personality is affected. Everything about that person is affected. Uh, basically, you get turned into another man when you either are intoxicated or when you are filled with the Spirit. The, the uh, Holy Spirit, if we allow ourselves to be yielded to Him, will change your life. So it is with a person filled with the Holy Spirit. And uh, so it is with a person that uh, is filled with... So it's interesting, I think, that in Ephesians 5.18, it kind of draws that parallel. Be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess, but be ye filled uh, with the Spirit. The world, though, has always had its mockers. Men mock its sin. They mock the Savior. They mock the saints. Uh, there's always going to be mockers amongst us. This derision is one of the devil's tools. Think of how many people that mockery has kept from being saved. Think of how many people that mockery has kept from, uh, from uh, doing great things for God. How do we respond when we are mocked? Have you ever been mocked for your Christian faith? Uh, made fun of? How do we respond? I've got a couple things here, just uh, just throw these out there. Don't get defensive. We should not be shocked when non-Christians, or for that matter, uh, carnal Christians, 
mock our beliefs. Jesus was mocked more than any of us probably ever will be. He also told us that people would hate us because we follow him. Uh, This is the cost of being a disciple of Christ. When we embrace Christianity, can I tell you we are giving up uh, our, uh, we're, we're giving up all hope of being popular in today's society. Christianity does not uh, lead to popularity. Uh, all you have to look at, look at in, our, in, in recent society is Tim Tebow, football player. What did he do? Uh, he was nationally derided and mocked, uh, simply right in John 3.16. Uh, on himself when he was uh, playing football and other things. He stood up uh, for his faith and he was mocked and derided and made fun of. When we embrace Christianity, we give up the hope of being popular. Can I tell you today, friend, don't live for the world's approval. Don't live for society's approval. That is the, 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 the route so many churches today have taken to try to appeal to a lost and dying world and so they transform themselves to be as much like the world as they can, and that is not the answer. We don't reach lost and dying uh, people in their sin by attracting them, being as much like them as we can. We we show them a contrast of what God can do uh, with them, like the testimonies we heard earlier. And so let's not try to go after the world's approval. 2 Peter 3.3. He said, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts. Don't be shocked when it happens. 2 Timothy 3.12, Yea, and all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. It does not say some. It says all. And I believe that all, uh, if you look it up in the Greek there, uh, it means all. Some of those words come out like that. So, Let's not be surprised when it happens. Amen. (coughs) So don't get defensive. Secondly, never lash out in anger. Now, we live in a time of social media. When somebody upsets you, what do you do? Well, you go on Facebook and you say something about them, right? Uh, You go on uh, whatever else, uh, snap face and chat room, whatever those things are. By the way, do you know that they're talking about a conglomerate, uh, YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook? all joining into one big company. Did you hear about that? It's called You Twit Face. Uh, but that's the, the world we live in today is uh, social media. And so we go, we as Christians sometimes, and don't you see it? Don't all of us see it? Christians that go on there and say things and they shouldn't say and uh, do things they shouldn't do. Don't lash out in anger. Uh, don't, uh, that was never Jesus' strategy. When he was being reviled, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. You know what he's saying? <coughs> he's going to let God judge them. He's just going to do what he's going to do. He's going to continue to do right. He didn't answer. Uh, sometimes he answered plainly, uh, but often he kept his mouth shut. He trusted his father to vindicate him. Do you? Can we... Trust our Father to vindicate us. If you're mocked for your faith, keep your cool. Don't lash out in anger. Don't let angry people uh, push your buttons. God will give you the words to say, uh, but we have to allow his love to control our tongue. (coughs) So don't get defensive. Don't lash out in anger. And then number three, this is the easy one. Pray for your enemies. (laughs) 
Jesus said it best in Matthew 5, 43, You have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. We'll just close with that tonight, right? <laughs> love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. No, he goes on. But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. That's a hard, hard command right there. Uh, don't hate the people who misuse you. Don't hate the people who falsely accuse you. Don't hate the people who uh, are do whatever to you. We're not to hate them. We're not to lash out. We're not to get defensive. And we're not to, uh, we're supposed to actually pray for them. Uh, pray that they, here's, here's a good prayer for them, because I've had this question asked to me many times. What am I supposed to pray? I mean, dear Lord, help a rock to fall on their head. You know, that's a prayer we'd like to pray sometimes. No. Uh, here's a good prayer. Pray that they'll discover the same mercy that you found. Because you don't deserve it either. Amen? I don't deserve mercy. I don't deserve forgiveness. So why don't we pray for those who despitefully use us, that maybe they'll find the same mercy that I found. They'll find the same forgiveness I found. So what's the answer to mockery? <laughs> the very reason they were being mocked is the answer to mockery, being filled with the Spirit. We can go back to our list of fruit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, all those good things that will help us to respond right to people. That'll make the <clears throat> That'll make the frailest believer bold if we allow the Spirit to embolden us like that. So just a few thoughts there for us tonight. Uh, next week we'll pick up at the beginning of Peter's message here and uh, be a help to us then.